Hi, and welcome to BTS Podcast. I am your host, Lene Cook, and I am so excited to have Peter Neff on the podcast. He and I met through a NASA social event, as we will say during the interview, but I do just want to give a quick shout out to NASA Social. I had such an incredible time at the ISAT 2 launch, and I was just insanely impressed by the variety of people that were there and how friendly everybody was. It was a really, really good time. You can look into going to a NASA launch, literally just search NASA social and you will find where to and how to apply. Please don't be intimidated. Just share how you want to share NASA content and um, they'll either approve you or they won't, but it is worth a shot. A lot of people flew from all around the country to go to the ISAT 2 launch in Lompoc, California. Peter and I met there. It turns out that we both live in Seattle. So I met him at the UW campus and got a chance to check out just what he does. It was really, really incredible. I am so happy to be able to just share this information with everybody. Peter is currently in Antarctica and you can find him at at Peter underscore Neff on Twitter. His Twitter is in the description of this podcast. Music on this podcast is by Benjamin Betherum. Look up Benjamin on SoundCloud. The work he does is really awesome. It's soundcloud.com slash Betherum, B-E-T-H-U-R-U-M. I may or may not be pronouncing his name wrong. He sent me a recording with how to pronounce it, and still, I feel like I'm doing it wrong. Anyways, thanks, Ben. I'm so stoked to have your music on here, and I hope everyone enjoys this interview. So I am here on the UW campus with Peter Neff, um, and you are a glaciologist. Yeah. Is that... That's, okay. Yeah, that's a fair. Okay. I'm always trying to figure out the way to, to most accurately summarize interests, but uh, there are many flavors of glaciologists, but I'm one flavor. Okay. <laughs> and um, Peter and I met thanks to NASA's um, NASA Social Program, which is super cool, and anybody with a social media presence at all, whether that means just your friends on Facebook or whatever that, or, or if you're into Reddit or whatever that may be. Uh, you can literally just go online and apply to go to a NASA launch, and it's pretty incredible. So that's how Peter and I met in Lompoc a few months ago, I think. I think it was just a month ago. It was it? It was like a very long time yeah. ago. It's like the whole the world is moving slowly and fast at the same time. Because it is, yeah. for sure. <laughs> yeah. Um, at the ISAT 2 launch, which was really cool, and I imagine super relevant to your work. Yeah, but also just super cool as a human experience as well. But yeah. Like, like, the thing with NASA is, like, there's sort of this underlying uh, fan base where anybody who grows up in the U.S., basically, and beyond, is a huge fan of NASA just because they do this, like, fundamentally radical exploration, so. Yeah, and and I like that it really does run the gamut from just, like, person who thinks that astronauts are cool, which they are, and that's great, yeah. to, like, conspiracy theorists, <laughs> yes. which is, like, a real treat. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, it was an interesting, the, the NASA social mix of people was super interesting. I had no, no idea what to expect. Neither, but. I was really nervous, to be honest with you, that, like, maybe I wasn't smart enough or cool enough or, like, whatever, and then it was just such an incredible mix of... Like people from all over, from all different backgrounds. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was very cool. That's a smart way for NASA to keep the fan base going and yeah, get tons of different exposure. So totally. 
Um, (laughs) And so um, I guess let's backtrack a little bit and talk about your work because the podcast, I know um, I briefly explained it to you. Mm -hmm. It's called BTS, so Behind the Scenes, and we are all about... Um, looking at the behind the scenes of like a final product, whatever that may mean, mm-hmm. um, really kind of with the goal of making some career paths and industries seem more approachable to people yeah. um, and humanizing the people behind what, the final products that we see and also to have an impact on consumer choices um, so that people are making educated choices when it comes to what products they're buying. So um, there's like a wide array of people uh, on here from all different backgrounds, and I think you're in fact the first like scientist we're having on, which right. is exciting. Breaking down barriers. Yeah, I'm gonna try and talk my um, semi shy aunt into being on, and she works. I don't know if you're familiar with the Jackson Laboratories, but she does like um, bioinformatics there. So, okay. Um, there are too many labs. I'm not very different that sides one, but... of science, but it'll be cool. So, do you want to share a little bit of your background, like what? programs you've gone through because you do have your PhD, if I'm not mistaken. So Dr. Peter Neff. Correct. (laughs) Awesome. Rock rock doctor, ice doctor. Um, Yeah. Do you want to walk us through some of that? Sure. Yeah. So I have my PhD in geology and I have um, master's and bachelor's degrees in geology as well. So bachelor of science and master's um, from right here at, at UW the Earth and Space Sciences Department, which we're in right now. So it's where I discovered geology, and that that really was my entryway into um, more of the, I guess I sort of do climate science now through studying ice. Um, but the, the beginning thread was, I think, coming to school interested in history, mm. but also sort of having a, a quantitative background. I'd done science events, Science Olympiad in high school, um, so it was really the history and the stories behind geology that attracted me. You, mm-hmm. um, you know, you can sort of go out into a landscape and based on basic observations of what you see and the structure of the, the hills and valleys around you, you can start to learn about what caused those things to be there. So there's this sort of extra dimension that knowing about geology adds to being in the world and that's sort of... I guess it was sort of life-changing to, to realize that. And so I got super excited about geology and signed up as a major my first year and then got really lucky and got a job in this lab. Um, and from there, it sort of just continued in, in sort of enthusiasm. Like, I was just really passionate about learning more about this stuff. And mm-hmm. the fact that I got the chance to get my hands dirty at an early age um, and early in my career, I just sort of... I guess, I, you know, you never stop pushing. Once you find something that you like, um, you know, it is challenging to stay in this career. It's not a super straightforward career path. Um, right. But what we get to do is pretty dang rewarding and unique and um, bizarre sometimes in, in many ways. But, yeah, so geology is, is the, the educational pathway that I came in through mm-hmm. um, which involves a mix of the hard sciences of physics, math, chemistry um, but just enough of all of those that it kept my uh, attention through through those sort of difficult first years of, of um, studying at university um, and then you know now I'm constantly applying different aspects of all of those to studying polar ice almost exclusively now it's what I work with and pretty much just Antarctic ice 
Um, so I call myself a glaciologist because ice is the common thread through everything that I do, but I'm mm -hmm. interested in ice for what it tells us about the climate. So for what every layer of snow and ice that never melts in a place like Antarctica, that's a little package of information from that year, and they just stack up. Right. So that's what, that's what I work with. Which is uh, super fascinating to me because I, I guess I'd thought about that in some ways through ice, but when I was a kid I was obsessed with all of like the... Um, like insects and bugs that get trapped in the mm. uh, like sap and stuff of tree. Yeah. I can't remember the name for it right now. Yeah. yeah, of amber. Yeah, and that yeah. was like my favorite thing as a kid. And all I wanted was like my like my parents would get me them like for my birthday and stuff. Nice. And it was it was the one thing I wanted when we went to Denmark was that I saw like one of them like a bug in yeah. the amber, and I was like, that's the only thing right. I care about when I was like seven. Nice. <laughs> but yeah, that's basically what the ice does to to everything that ends up in the atmosphere if it, if it gets attached to a little snowflake and falls over Antarctica it's preserved and that's what we work with so then are you also able to and this is totally sidebarring because my original next question was going to be about talking about career paths so we'll get to that mm -hmm. in a second but now that you're saying that I'm thinking through how um like all around the world, obviously, we're freezing uh, ice in our freezers, and mm -hmm. we're freezing, like, bars are freezing. And so, like, are you able to look at that kind of ice and know what kind of toxins exist in a region based on, like, the ice you get from, like, in, like, a whiskey? Uh, you <laughs> certainly could, yeah. I mean, I, I, I would imagine there are people who, who trace um, contaminants and, and stuff like that through, I mean, I don't think you necessarily need a frozen sample in that case. Like, mm -hmm. we can test uh, tap water for, you know, what we do in this lab is it's a stable isotope lab. So we mm -hmm. measure the different masses of, of an atom. Um, so in the case of water, hydrogen, or oxygen, there are a couple of stable forms of those, of those, um, those elements. Mm -hmm. um, and because they have different masses, they, they move through... The hydrologic system in a particular way based on those things and so right. we can tease out um, a bunch of different processes from um, the temperature when that rain or snow falls we mm -hmm. can we can get that sort of information from interesting isotopes so, so you could do that in tap water and, and yeah. you do so you'd see tap water here in seattle because we're relatively close to the ocean um, would be pretty close to an oceanic value whereas if you did it in if you measured the same in, in uh, Colorado, where the water has traveled a long way mm -hmm. and it's been distilled through that process, it'd have a, a, a more extreme isotopic value. It'd be depleted of, of heavy isotopes. And so that's the sort of technique right. that we use. Like That's how we know the temperature um, in the past from ice cores. We look at the, the, um, the isotopes in those water molecules mm -hmm. that are ice. So That's super cool. So I, that question mainly came from I was thinking through uh, using what you do, but to compare it to, like, what is in the air from, like, five years ago, right? So if you yeah. have that sample, being able to just do that yep. in that straightforward way that's, like, a little bit, it's more measurable in, like, a immediate format than, like, pulling old data that may, formats may change over the course of five years, I imagine. Yeah. Um, so sure. that's where that came from. It was just on my mind. So uh, yeah, yeah. No, <laughs> at any rate. That's back. essentially where, you know, we can't measure what the tap water was like 10 years ago. So we have to go to some place where that water is. Unless archived. you have old ice. Yeah. Right. Right. Someone's got a big freezer. <laughs> right. Like we do. <laughs> but otherwise you would go 
to to a glacier that where you know mm-hmm. the ice hasn't melted and then you can get back to that. So you know, we very cool. measure lead concentrations in in the ice, and we can very clearly see um, where ice from the 1970s is because it has massively more lead than, mm-hmm. than we mm-hmm. have in the atmosphere now. Right. And that was actually partly sort of circular. They saw this in Greenland ice cores that lead values were, were rising into the 1970s and it was uh, largely due to the lead they were putting in gasoline to lubricate engines. Oh, so interesting. That was partly phased out after seeing data from Greenland where we had this big spike in lead in the 1970s. That's so, incredible. And now we use that as a a marker, an age marker in, in the ice. So if we see that spike in lead, we know it's we're back to the 1970s. And then right, and more than just one off. way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so. so, okay, so then let's talk about career paths a little bit because I'm really mm-hmm. interested in, um, like, from your bachelor's and master's and then, like, obviously with your PhD, you have to get more specific. Yeah. Um, and then even, even after that, like, what kind of career paths... Um, were available and are available to you right now. Yeah. Yeah, so I would broadly consider myself a part of the, the field of geoscience. So mm-hmm. we wouldn't call it, I do strictly geology anymore. Geoscience is sort of the modern application of these massive data sets that we now have observing the planet and, and using those to more quantitatively understand how the Earth operates. And that's mm-hmm. what we're all sort of after, our individual little piece of understanding how the, the Earth works. Um, so geoscience is interesting because people come into it from a huge range of backgrounds from biology, so biogeoscience, mm-hmm. ge- geobiology, um, to physics, chemistry, math, you know, so, so people often will end up all the way to their PhD never having studied anything in geology or geoscience, but they have a background in, you know, computation or physics or pure chemistry, and then they apply it to a, a geo, geological, um, you know, an earth-focused question. And so we have a really broad entryway into geoscience. Um, and for me, I feel like one of the things that our um, community doesn't do very well is provide a breadth in, in what that future career path can be. So right. I guess maybe I got into applied research pretty early, but I always felt um, through my PhD as well that the only mark of success is if you stay in academia and you become a professor and you do your research forever. And, you know, that's that's highly valued, even though the impact of it is questionable. Well, and that was my next thing is like, and that's what's so wild to me because um, a lot of my family on one side of my family is in that world Mm -hmm. where they've stayed mostly in in research or academics which is incredibly valuable in some ways and in other like as a marketing person (laughs) as you can imagine (laughs) (laughs) right where i'm like but how do you get that into the world and make it like clear and concise to people and digestible and they're like well the facts should speak for themselves and i'm like no one's reading the facts that's That's right yeah who ends up with them right and like and it's just, it's so interesting and so difficult because um, in, in two ways, from my point of view, is one, getting that information out there. Like, I was listening to this, um, I think it was, I can't remember which podcast it was. It was something about innovations, and it's from, like, a different network than what I usually listen to. Mm-hmm. And they were, I did not realize that, like, um, that I think it was, like, Gregor Mendel's, like, P research on 
was basically ignored until some other person mm. was doing research and right. dusted off this old paper and was like, oh, this yeah. can apply to so much more. And then I think started applying it to like fruit flies or something. Yeah. And I was like, it, um, I already am personally overwhelmed when I, uh, like I go home and my grandfather collected books and they're all in order of like chronological order. So from Mm -hmm. like the Epic of Gilgamesh up until he passed away in like 2002. And so like I was in the room of like Joan Didion and Joyce Carol Oates and like that era. Mm -hmm. But already when I go home, I'm like, Oh, I should just quit my job and stay here and read all day. (laughs) But then there's so much more like good information that's coming out right now. And so when I think about like, all of the research everyone's doing, even if you were to pare it down from just stuff happening in 2018 and then just the stuff that's like peer reviewed and uh, like as close to reality and truth as possible, mm-hmm. like culminating all of that into an actionable way that gets people operating on the same foundational kind of like, you know, and I'm putting quotes around this for listeners, <laughs> facts, like, yeah, that's insane, right? And like, yeah. and the stuff that does bubble up. What a nightmare, because I'm sure a lot of people um, who are listening know this already, but, like, a lot of the stuff that bubbles up as um, maybe it's countering a previously, like, widely accepted theory, mm-hmm. those fixes don't, like, those don't even get bubbled up in, like, applied medicine. <laughs> so, yeah. like, they're certainly not getting bubbled up when it comes to, like, changes in the world around us. Yeah. And, cl- and so what do you do, like, what is it that you've done on your end to like get that out because I've seen that you've collaborated or worked with like an artist before I think which Mm -hmm. was super cool to see um because that is certainly a dream of mine is for someone to be like hey we really like your photography and video style like why don't you just come into the world with us for a while and like capture it like that's the dream um which I think is a natural to me science and art is like a natural avenue but outside of that like that's probably still going to attract a pretty strong crossover audience (laughs) Like, outside of that, like, what do you do to get your findings outside of academia? Yeah, I think most people don't do much, and I don't know what the assumed pathway is besides the students that you teach, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. if you do become a professor, the bulk of your job, nine months of the year, is to teach, Mm -hmm. um, you know, undergraduates at at most institutions. But, um, yeah, it's another... (laughs) problem that we have where the sort of the end of our scientific process is is publishing a peer-reviewed paper um, that we fully know to other academics most likely yeah yeah basically because <laughs> well, most of it's behind a paywall as well and you know it's uh, especially the interesting most, the most highly sought after journals you know nature mm-hmm. and science are our peak journals as far as um viewership mm-hmm. which really the only thing that <laughs> academics care about is how much their paper how often their papers are cited mm. um which is a purely academic thing. <laughs> um, yeah, there's sort of this vacuum between putting our paper out there and it actually getting taken up by anybody. And the people that operate in that that empty space are science journalists. And, right. you know, it, it's a space that's become more important, particularly for, for us in climate science, because obviously... We, we have information that that really needs to be yeah, acted upon. You're a little under fire right now. We're un- under fire in many ways. I, yeah, I wish you know we <laughs> from should. From all directions. There, there's no good reason that that it should be under fire as a discipline, but um, but yeah. So one way that it's described is we have this loading dock style of of delivering our results, and we put them out there on the loading dock. But 
you know, somebody has to come and find them to, to then proceed right. and do anything with it. So it's a scavenger we, hunt that only the person planning it knows about. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, you know, we do have some really important organizations that, that manage to do that space. So, and it's on my mind often because my wife, Heidi Roop is a scientist at the climate impacts group here. Mm. So she is also a PhD researcher. Um, you know, we did our, our PhDs together on, on paleoclimate, past climate. But Very she's cool. now, you know, got tired of publishing in the Journal of Paleolimnology. Right. And wanted so I'm to sure has a very widespread readership. Super widespread, yeah. <laughs> a couple people, <laughs> a few people everywhere. <laughs> uh, but so she now takes information, um, you know, from big international bodies like the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change that summarizes the state of our research every few years, um, regionalizes it, and then delivers it, builds those relationships so that, you know, not only are they spewing information at local tribes or city governments or the state government, they're building a relationship to figure out what those people want and need and right. actually getting that. So it's, you know, it's not a one-directional process, which back to academia, we traditionally do this sort of one way, like, let me lecture at you for one hour, students. That's right. going to be, you know, a, it's my assumed way that you're going to receive information and it's actually going to be useful to you, but... I think the the more that us younger people who have been around the amount of information that we have today, I right. think that as we all ascend into positions where we're teaching and we're interacting with the public, there's a greater expectation that you actually think about how you're doing it. Um, Which there should be. Yeah. That's like, and and I think on top of it, we all have social media, right? Like yeah. if you look at people 20 years ago, those journals were really outside of having a good PR department that's in like knocking on the doors of the New Yorker and like whoever else might care. Those journals were like the main way of getting out to the world. And hopefully it, you know, like goes into other things, right? Like it, it hopefully then gets cited by one person and then that gets cited by more publications. Yeah. But in today's world with, you know, YouTube, Twitter, everything that we all have as, Options. I think that you're right, that like this generation is more in touch with those tools and more comfortable because there for a long time has been a lot of hesitation. And I imagine it's like this in, um, in like very specific science publications mm-hmm. um, is that there's like, well, then how will we make money if it's, if there's no paywall? Yes. And it's like it's a huge discussion. Y- yeah. But <laughs> you're, you're not going to thrive with like your dwindling viewership and you know subscribers and if they were to shift to a more um like media model there'd probably be you know and then that also opens them up to other journalists who want to cite their work yeah um granted that then also opens you up to a lot of uh incorrect citations i imagine because yeah. yeah and spinning spinning of content just potentially not even intentionally just based on lack of familiarity with the space yeah Andy needs to come in. Uh, please hold. <laughs> no worries. Hi. <laughs> Time to go home? <laughs> you don't have to do it silently. You're fine. We can keep talking. <laughs> um, that's really interesting. And so then what is your exact job here? <laughs> <laughs> what is my exact job here? Um, I'm a, a postdoctoral research associate here, so... I finished my doctorate now three years ago, and uh, I have support here 
um, half through a project that we we um, presented to the National Science Foundation and, and it was selected to be funded. Um, so that's a project that's actually taking me to Antarctica on Sunday. Right, which is why we were uh, in a bit of a time crunch to get this, which is good because I feel like if we weren't in time crunch, it would have been like, oh yeah, sure, maybe next week. Yeah, right? yeah, that's um, always hard. So then I, to back up a little bit from that for people who aren't super familiar with um, like these types of programs, can yeah. you explain a little bit the process of how you get that funding, how you know where to apply, and like what kind of work to do, and then had you not got funding, would you just not get paid? Like, how does that work? <laughs> That's a pretty much a direct yes. Yeah, if you don't have funding, <laughs> you don't get paid. Um, and uh, yeah, this, at my career stage, postdoctoral, you know, it's sort of a, a, well, it's a zero to five year career phase where you are essentially getting a little extra mentorship on the additional uh, managerial aspects of mm -hmm. being in academia. Um, Bye, Andy. Nice meeting you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I'm doing fully independently doing research, still in close consultation with a, a faculty supervisor. Um, you know, often you're just working, you're purely doing a project of theirs. Mm -hmm. um, you know, because you want to, you have to come into a project that's already funded. Right. Um, that is strategic. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so there's this rolling, you know, structure of you're, you're as you're finishing your PhD, you're trying to find a postdoc, or or you can apply directly to, to try to get a faculty position, which um, is more common in some research areas. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, it's it's. Um, an interesting career phase where you're you're trying to publish as much as you can, uh, start doing original work and establish your own research trajectory, mm -hmm. um, and get grants funded. <laughs> and essentially, part of your job is to get a full time job. Mm -hmm. So your supervisor, mm -hmm. the ultimate mark of success for your supervisor would be to say, "Oh yeah, my postdoc, you know, now is a professor." At, name your prestigious university. That's and is that the full-time job available to you after that as being a professor? Like, what other full-time jobs are, like, would you look at and go, like, oh, this is a perfect fit? I think if you weren't going, if you weren't really wanting to go in acad academia, it, and my sense is that it would be silly to do a postdoc mm. because it's, okay. it, basically, it's just a way for, <laughs> for, uh, it, in the, the pyramid structure of, of how, how research is I, I done. I don't think... I don't think uh, people who said of academics would want it called a pyramid script. Oh, well, I think, they all, I think they all know. But, you know, there's a base layer of undergraduates and right. then graduate students. It's true. That do, you know, graduate students do the research, at least in my experience. They're mm -hmm. the ones, you know, you don't have your PhD yet, but after you're a couple of years into your PhD program, you are a, a pretty experienced scientist mm -hmm. uh, in a lot of ways, and you're, you're the grunt doing the work. And then a postdoc is... It's just this awkward continuation of that. You're in this gray zone purgatory between being a student and being a faculty member. So officially, I'm classified as faculty, but I'm, I'm not a part of departmental decisions. You're not sort of fully brought into the fold. Interesting. Um, and and it's, it, it's a great, it, it has upsides because you sort of have more independence. You have less of those extra service items nagging at you. Fear Administrative fear. type stuff, yeah, I imagine. Yeah. Yeah, yeah so, so it's, it is nice, and it, can, it definitely gives you space to sort of come up with that idea of what um, distinguishes your research and, and what 
you know, what little niche you can fit into. Interesting. question you can chase after. So, yeah, and we're cheaper than grad students, too. So <laughs> even though they, they pay us a more livable wage, uh-huh. um, we, don't, we don't have tuition costs. Oh, that's true. Yeah, yeah that is a fair, yeah. that's a fair assessment. So then what do you do on a day-to-day basis? Um, I, I mean, everybody's research process is different. So um, right now I don't have a lot of lab work. We've been gearing up for a field project um, for quite a while. So the first two years of my postdoc I did at the University of Rochester mm-hmm. um, where we were designing, building, and testing a piece of equipment that we have to take to Antarctica to to. Move this towards, weekend, yeah, yeah, we had we had down this weekend, and we'll be there. I'll be there for three and a half months. And so, when did you start working on, on that? That project started. I mean, I signed up for it before my PhD was over. Right, I got a postdoc lined up. Right. So we we started. We've been discussing this project since since uh, early 2015. Wow. <laughs> and we we applied for funding in the first half of 2016. It took about two years for that to be. The, sort of the logistics to be hashed out and the funding granted. So it's an international Antarctic science project. So we have partners uh, in Australia because mm-hmm. we need to go to the part of Antarctica that they operate in. Um, so we had to get co-funded with the National Science Foundation in the U.S. and the Australian Antarctic Program. And as you can imagine, two government bodies negotiating across oh, what a treat. an ocean. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It took a so while. that's why it took so long. <laughs> yeah, and, and the logistics of Antarctica being what they are, we're a pretty big project, and so uh, we ended up getting delayed by a full summer research season because the, the Australian program just wasn't ready to... We, we just sort of... It wasn't our turn in line at that oh, stage. Oh, interesting. And so we got bumped, which, which was quite difficult for me, and that was part of what ended up getting me over here to UW in Seattle. Um, <laughs> there's a lot more, a lot more to it as well because my wife is also an academic. So we mm-hmm. had to, we've, we're constantly both trying to navigate the field and get jobs in the same place. Right. Yada yada yada. That's yeah, which I imagine like that's hard enough on your own. Mm-hmm. But then when you're like trying to make sure that you're applying in the right, like that you're each applying to similar locations and then you hopefully also get called back in the same location yeah. and not different ones. Yeah. That's a lot of uh, logistics. Yeah, it's a lot of leapfrogging and figuring out who's going to take the lead for, for now and, and just piecing it together. I mean, it's not, you know, plenty of couples do it all over right. in, in every different career, but um, but yeah, there, there are just very few, like when you're doing something that's so specific. Yeah. You know, I fully realize that my Antarctic science research, you know, if I don't, if I stop doing it, nobody's going to die. <laughs> but right. at the same time, I feel like I'm pursuing a, a worthwhile enough question that, that I do have a, a decent chance of attracting a university to. Right. To and so what, what is your position. question? My question is, um, how, well, can we better understand, um, the part of Antarctica that's changing the fastest. So, mm, so if we, mm-hmm. you know, if from here you go straight south in the Pacific Ocean, you'll hit the part of Antarctica that's where the glaciers are, are changing really fast, and there are a big reservoir of ice that is going to contribute to sea level rise, because we are living in a warming world. That's just that's the progression, and we're trying to figure out the pace at which that sea level rise is going to come, particularly from that spot, just because it's a big reservoir of ice and, and that we don't quite know how fast it's going to behave. Mm-hmm. It's in a quite difficult part of Antarctica to get to. It's the furthest from any research base. It's right between where the U.S. traditionally operates and 
um, the United Kingdom. So mm. we're starting to work together. Um, mm-hmm. So my research is really just trying to push um, the glaciology research community and our ice core research community, push us from the inland of, of that part of Antarctica towards the coast, where we know the ocean is what is uh, is causing these glaciers to flow out and into the ocean faster. There's warm water that's getting underneath floating ice. And, right. Um, we can get climate records from right there where that's happening, but we don't have them just because nobody said we need to go get these. So I'm that guy. <laughs> so, and then, so say there were a best case scenario where uh, the world was based off of like actual logic. Oh yeah. Um, and you were to come back with the research and go like, okay, these factors are causing the damage and that were to be shared with uh, like the government's in question, mm-hmm. or I guess I suppose like in control of that area, which is insane to me because I'm also oh, yeah. like, like water moves, yeah, and so like really everybody is responsible mm-hmm. because it's not <laughs> like it doesn't stay in one place. So like yeah. everything makes an impact, whether it's small or large or whatever. But like cumulatively, we are all responsible. It is not up to like whatever like one country to then be the one that makes the right choices and saves everybody else sure really we'll come to that (laughs) right but it's it's just a little wild to me that like i mean a that we think of our environment as separate from us anyways because like we're a part of it like it is not this like separate entity that you then step into like there are worms like under our feet under the cement like it's it's still there um and it's just a, it's like a bit of like a game of hot potato where people are like, well, this isn't really our fault. Um, yeah. When it's everybody's fault. Um, so in a best case scenario, that information gets gathered. You get like some tangible like X, Y, and Z need to stop. Then what would happen like in a fantasy land? Yeah. All red what, tape aside. What we're doing is is more like we're trying to uh, understand how quickly. A single glacier, a massive glacier, you know, something mm-hmm. like 50 miles wide, like wow. really big um, features, how quickly they can behave. So the question that we're asking is how much sea level rise from Antarctica, how fast? And we're looking mostly, we're trying to understand its past behavior to, to be able to say with more precision what 21st century sea level rise is going to be. Mm-hmm. Um, so essentially what we want to do is just narrow the uncertainty and give a, a, a clearer answer. We say, look, this is the likely range of sea level rise. So, so we're not after it, sort of stopping anything at this point. So in climate science speak, we'd call it mitigation. You know, we don't have ways <laughs> from the Antarctic side of things to, to mitigate um, what's going on, mm-hmm. to, to slow down, melt, things like that. Um, we basically just want to provide the best guess of what to plan for for sea level rise. So it's the information that coastal planners okay. and city planners need. So if you're, if right. you're the people that are going to build uh, seawalls or other structures to, to protect New York City, um, how big do they have to be? And so our, our uncertainty, I mean, it's sort of 21st century sea level rise is going to be something between one foot and, and three feet, right. most likely. But we... In, in, we can never rule out that Antarctica is going to totally surprise us and, and behave much more quickly than, than we think it should. So it's right. 
it's all there are a lot of things that we're trying to pin down but so then how do city planners get that information uh right now uh splashy papers that come out in nature actually sort of get transmitted and so Uh, at this point we have there are a couple of models for how Antarctica's going to proceed and my phone's going to blow up um but they're they're essentially like toy models that people are playing with I don't mean like climate models and models of ice sheets are incredibly sophisticated Mm -hmm. but they're still not you know an accurate representation of of nature of how the earth actually operates so a model that gives really interesting information but we know has big problems that is out there and like I know that coastal planners in the Netherlands have looked at it and we're like I mean it gives them information to act on and, mm-hmm. and in this case it's probably the, the projection from that paper that I'm thinking of uh, is more probably exaggerated on, on the high end so what they build would be over over engineered which mm-hmm. is you know great safety yeah. wise but, but but if you're looking at the pure economics of it you don't want to be spending any more than than you should to protect your right your if it's overkill coast. yeah you want to be building something that's fit for purpose right you right know? yeah um so then how how many other people do you say or do you know like do what you do in the world um i mean the core community of people that i interact with would be a couple hundred okay um we have larger organizations like our biggest society in, in geoscience is the american geophysical union so overall from from space physics to glaciology it's like 23 25,000 people or the membership is probably even larger but the annual meeting is that big we have a, a cryosphere section of that that's like uh on the order of 1500 people okay so that's the sort of size of the community that does studies ice from climate records that we can pull from the ice to modeling the numerical um you know the physics behind how ice flows so and so then within that i imagine that there should be information sharing across like here's your and i imagine obviously other people are also studying antarctica just potentially different areas than what you're looking at it sounds like and so then how do you all come together is is that something that um that the teams do is go like okay instead of you know Peter and his team putting out this paper and us putting out this paper Mm -hmm. that we can kind of combine forces and put out a more succinct or digestible and like aligned um point of view together does that happen yeah and that's uh there's a mix of um yeah, the importance of all those different parts to how we communicate in, in academia. So peer-reviewed published papers are um, the slower, you know, the slowest form of communication, but mm-hmm. it's but it has that higher level of of having been peer-reviewed. So it's um, you know the bugs are worked out a little bit more. But we have to go to conferences and workshops a couple times a year to sort of on that earlier end of you know we don't know exactly what the result is here, but we've got some interesting information that this group needs to see and together we can make sense of it so small workshops you know 20 people to 100 people a couple of those per year would be pretty common Mm -hmm. and then we have our big annual meeting at least in in my community it's pretty common that every year you would go to this american geophysical union and it's just this massive massive reunion of all the people you've ever worked with before (laughs) um and yeah, so we rely on that, and there's really a lot to be said for 
like I'm thinking of, you know, we travel to a lot of these workshops and we mm-hmm. fly a lot, which is counterproductive as far as carbon emissions. Right. But there's that human element of science where it's a bunch of humans trying to understand the planet. And if we don't have re- personal relationships with each other, mm-hmm. um, there's a, a loss of transmission. Basically, right. like my closest collaborations are my closest friends, really. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just maybe that this gets across a little bit of how deep into this stuff we get where it's like it's my my life it's a a massive fraction of my life is thinking about this stuff um and not not doing a few of the other things that somebody that's less obsessed would do you know i think about antarctica every single day like it's a right it's a weird thing to do but it's just i hate to use the word snowball but it you know once oh god yeah (laughs) Um, Understandably once, so. <laughs> yeah, once you get going, and you know, there have been plenty of times where I consider whether or not I really should stay in academia for all that it requires of me, and and for how my skills do and don't fit into the mold. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, if I've been doing this for ten years now, I have this sort of level of understanding and expertise that that would be lost if I fall out of it. So there's that right. sort of pressure to sort of keep applying your skills. And have you, so I know what you said with the post-doctorate program you're in right now, you have like a mentor basically. Mm-hmm. Have you always had mentors to kind of like lead you in this direction? Did you have to ask for those? Like how did you um, kind of get that leadership from somebody and advice from somebody in which direction to go? Yeah, I got really lucky and had a great mentor from the first opportunity that I had right here in, in this lab. So mm-hmm. my supervisor, Eric Steig here, quickly became um, my biggest mentor when I was an undergrad, and then we have been friends and ever since. And, you know, it's that friend-mentor-colleague relationship now where, um, you know, he's my biggest supporter and also somebody who, um, you know, challenges me and, and we're, we feed off each other and, and find cool new ideas. And, um, and, yeah, from that initial mentor, it's... It's sort of getting advice and when you're looking at the next position to go to finding a PhD program and you try to consider somebody you know a project but also a person and an institution that are going to be productive right right um, you know don't just go for the big institutional name that you're after for prestige um, you know you're working on a project with a group of humans that in a place right and so all of those things matter mm-hmm. um, so uh, you know, the experience is always going to be a mix of good and bad. There's no perfect right. place for you. So, so yeah, I mean, I've had a really interesting jump through from, from you know, the, the first big question for me in my career was, do I stay at, at my home department to do a master's degree or do I carry on and go get another experience at another school? And I had a lot of back and forth with people about um, how productive or unproductive it is to to have two degrees from one university. And in my case, it worked out totally fine. I had a great project to work on here for Mm -hmm. my master's, and it really helped me be ready for my PhD. So I went to New Zealand to do my PhD at Victoria University of Wellington to work on a project, an Antarctic ice core project, with a particular person. Um, And, uh, you know, I had everything lined up as far as what you need for that program. And then, but 
um, PhDs, I guess what I was thinking of, a PhD in New Zealand is in the European model where you spend three years just doing research, whereas here in the US, you, for your first few years are largely coursework. That's very specific applied coursework. Um, and then you have three to even four years of pure research after that. Um, so the time frame is different. The level of, uh, I mean, the amount of time you get to really dig into that topic is quite different between the two. And so I was better prepared for my PhD for having done a master's beforehand. So you could also go straight from a bachelor's degree to a PhD. Oh, interesting. But you, there's a lot more development that needs to happen in between. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's it's just, you know, you can you never know that the next decision is going to be the right one either. Right. Um, I mean, as it with anything. With anything, yeah. And <laughs> and you know, a problem that I definitely have is when I decide to go do something. Uh, I mean, I don't. I don't know that I've gotten into a situation where I felt like I had to get out of it mm, or that mm-hmm. I couldn't see it through. So I have this sort of stubbornness where I, like, I'm afraid of that failure, so I just sort of push through even though <laughs> it's sometimes not ideal. You may not want to dig into like the sunken cost uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, materials that are out there because <laughs> it's, yeah, I, I listen to... Uh, two of my favorite podcasts are uh, I think his name is Russ Roberts he has a podcast mm. called Econ Talk I've not heard of it it's been going on for years my dad showed it to me probably like eight or nine years ago um, and then my other is Freakonomics and they both yeah. Freakonomics in particular has a recent episode about um, like the importance of knowing when to quit Yeah. and and that's so interesting because I am somebody who's always just powered through stuff no matter what and only in recent years um, have I found that there's been some projects I'm on that I'm like oh actually this isn't contributing to anything in my life except yeah. for being a time suck. Yeah. I have a choice in this. I can just stop. Yep. <laughs> and it's, yeah. It's a valuable lesson, but I mean, as long as you make those, cho- as long as you're in things that you're excited about. So then speaking of which, what, what do you think is like the next thing after this? Because I imagine after this trip, mm-hmm. um, which it sounds like is a fairly lengthy trip. Yeah, very uh, long. Three, how, how long? Three and a half months. So three and a half months. Yeah, I leave November 4th and I won't be back from Antarctica until uh, Valentine's Day. Oh. <laughs> so mid-February. Wow. Yeah. That And so then you'll presumably have a lot of research to go through and a lot yeah. of findings to go through. When does this, does this project end? And then like what's next? And like what does that time frame and planning look like for you? Yeah. So the majority of, of the work for this project will take me through the end of 2019, the end of next year. Um, so in that, t- in that time, there's a lot of pressure to, to line up the next thing. So our, um, the season for applying for um, faculty jobs at universities tends to be the fall um, mm-hmm. and into the winter. So after faculty members are back from their summer research and all of that, they, they put out advertisements for jobs. So, um, so that is the biggest thing for me. I do want to get a, a faculty position because I, I like the balance of or in my mind, I envision that the balance between teaching and doing research is what I like. I really like teaching and getting our information out, mm-hmm. um, and not only formal teaching, but getting out into that vacuum of space between where our results are presented and, and their actual uptake. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so, so uh, in the midst of preparing for this field season, I'm putting out applications and, and interviewing for jobs, and um, and 
part of the trouble with the interactive field work is that I'm now gone for three months of the of the application and interviewing season. Right. <laughs> so I don't know how that's going to impact me, but it's not going to be the best. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I'm trying to get a bunch of applications out the door before I before I leave before have, Sunday. Yeah. I mean, we have a bit more. Well, thank you. Time. We're taking this time out of your schedule oh, because no that worries. is insane. I mean, I don't want to be filling out these applications, so. <laughs> Um, well, in that case, you're welcome. Yeah, <laughs> you have, procrastination. You have, exactly, is, productive procrastination. Yeah, that's right. That's a really good way to put it. Um, yeah, so it's I'll, I'll keep doing all of this stuff, and you know, we have some connectivity when we're in Antarctica. Yeah, I was going to ask, do you have Wi-Fi? Can you tweet? How will we follow along? Yeah, so while I'm on the main research station, I can tweet, and, and I'll be giving updates that, as much as I can. And then when we go to our field site, we're down to very limited email, like, you know. No like, Instagram think, like stories. It's like 1996. Okay. We're talking here. Like, yeah, text um, only. Satellite email. Make a sandwich while it sends. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah, and, and that one family member that tries to send a photo is going to clog it up for everybody. Right. And, you know, everybody's going to be angry at you. So, yeah, we'll have uh, two months where I'm out. We'll be, you know, 100 miles or something from the main station. So we'll be... 10 of us dropping down to seven of us for, for two, two and a half months out essentially just camping style. Um, Oh God. Yeah. It's a long, it's a long one. Um, that's so cold. So I'll be passing (laughs) thumb drives back to the station where they can then upload information to the Antarctic program and they'll be sort of tweeting for me, tweeting at me. Um, interesting. And and what is that program's Twitter handle? Uh, I think it's at, Aus Antarctic, AUS, Australian Antarctic Division. No underscores? I don't think so. Okay, interesting. Um, and then your your Twitter is? At Peter underscore Neff. Okay. Yeah, so, um, yeah, Which Twitter's Neff is spelled like the, uh, like the brand that yeah. we all, I wish, all had the socks of in high school. I wish I had thought of that. It's so weird. I never would have thought of using my last name like that. But yeah, well, it's missed opportunity, yeah, my I know. friend. Hey, Ice it over. is instead. <laughs> yeah, yep. All the glory. So if there was one kind of um, big kind of overarching take, because you did mention, and this is on my mind too with, with as much as I travel, is like the impact that taking flights has on the environment. Mm-hmm. Um, but if there was like one kind of, or okay, three. If you could choose a few mm-hmm. kind of high-level things that people could keep in mind for the way that they make decisions that can have a either positive or neutral impact on the environment that a lot of people don't know, like what are some of those things that you would say to, you know, yeah. the world? I mean, I think even if, if more people start to consider the impact of, of their actions, so the, the, the emissions and the, the greenhouse gases that come from driving, flying... Um, or purchasing a new car, right? Yeah. Or like what it means to purchase a new car versus running sure. one into the ground. Yeah, I think I'm just aware of like how much, like I, I think about that quite a lot, but I know the majority of, of people don't always. And mm-hmm. so, um, you know, it, it would rely on us having communicated that it's necessary, it's important enough for people to think about that, which I don't know that that we have really done as climate scientists or whatever. Just as a culture, it hasn't really been communicated. Yeah, so... I I mean, mean, it has, like, right? There's Rachel Carson. um, Mm -hmm. I mean, when I was a kid, what was my dad reading? Eight Little Piggies. Mm. Um, So, like, those things have been communicated. Like... Yeah. They were on Discovery Channel when we were growing up and Animal Planet. Like, they've existed. I think it's just culturally 
only recently have I heard people talk about it in a way that it's not like brushed aside as like oh that's some like hippie nonsense yeah you know and I think but culturally there's still those decisions in like what I was saying about the cars or like when I remind people like not only can you bring your own cup when you get coffee Mm -hmm. and not create more cup waste but often you'll get a discount yeah yeah right so <laughs> like, some, you know put some selfishness back into it yeah right like, but yeah i guess i guess the answer that i think i think i've given before in in conversations that i've had with um with people who don't do science with or, the common folk the, <laughs> the commoners no um, these i was thinking of people I think like I myself interview. um but i think the basic thing is just not like try to be more selfless like consider your impact mm-hmm. recognize that what you do impacts you know has impacts that start from how you behave in your community but then unseen connections to you know what what somebody in in low-lying countries are is going to experience through the sea level rise that that right we are driving as as a country of people who emit more more carbon per capita than than most other countries right we're we're up there at the top with with china and, and canada um which that data visualization, um, I don't know if you remember oh, yeah. at the, at, how do you pronounce it? Vandenberg? Vanderberg? Yeah, Vandenberg, Mid- yeah. Vandenberg. I was, I can't remember if it's an N or an R in yeah. there. For, I'm like, Vandenberg or Vandenberg? Anyways, when we were there, the NASA data visualizations literally show, what was it? I think it was carbon monoxide. Yeah, I can't remember Emissions, some kind yeah. of emissions. And you can see the global... <laughs> like, yeah, any... If you ever need to illustrate something, go to NASA, visit right. it's, it's out. just It's amazing. Um, um, yeah, so, I, yeah, that's that's a really good point, and I like that you brought up community because I think a, a lot of the ways people think about things is, like, how does it impact me? And, and if we all thought about these things in a proactive way and vocalized that... Yeah. In the same way that it's become socially acceptable to, like, get into debt to have a new car, mm-hmm. it will then become socially acceptable to, like, be like, oh, actually, I'm going to reuse this cup because it's, like, the environmentally f- thing to do without casting yeah. judgment on others and just do that. And so I think what you said applies to, like, not only our communities in terms of, like, environmental impact, but also just in terms of, like, emotional impact and, like, yeah. showing kindness. Yeah, I think there's a lot of big things going on in, in the U.S. right now and, and, uh, and like, ways to... A way to, well, it's sort of caught right in the middle of it, I guess, is that concept of I'm not going to necessarily do the thing that purely serves me most. I'm going to do something that, that has a broader benefit. You know, right. That's a concept that to me is is just fundamental, and I don't know exactly where it came from, but probably Same. my mom telling yeah. me to be nice or something, right? But that is not a, a fundamental operating principle for a lot of people. A lot of people, apparently. Which is... Like, I mean, I, I think we did know that, but it's certainly been made abundantly clear lately. Yeah. I, I don't think that I really understood that. I don't think I understood that until I was, like, in my early teens. Uh, and I remember very specifically in church, like, because I grew up going to church, that I'd always had in my head I had to be a good example so that other people would also mm-hmm. want to, like, go to... You know, so that other people would want, to, like to also be positive and like go to heaven yeah and then I remember because yeah. I was like oh obviously it's very important that like everybody feels this way because that's you know I was a kid and yeah. if that's the only way. truth you're given you're like this is obviously the right thing and I remember the kids that I was in church with were like 
oh no, we're going to go and like whatever it was, like invite more people to come to church and like be a good person basically just so that we don't go to hell. And I was like, oh, I don't care if I do or not. I was just... Well, you guys are all doing this out of fear and not because you care about the people. Like, and I was so strong, defeated. Strong motivator. But I didn't realize that, like, translated to just, like, the general population outside of religion of just, like, people are, like, voting for themselves because of their particular perceived situation and what the perceived outcome will be, which is shocking. Um, yeah. So, on that note, I have one more question. <laughs> yeah. And it's a question I ask everybody. Um, so, as I mentioned, the theme is, like, behind the scenes mm-hmm. across the board of, like, topics, verticals, uh types of careers, whatever, what is like one final product or, um, kind of just behind the scenes of something that you would like to hear an interview on? Whoa. Oh, I should have sent this to you ahead of time. I'm so sorry. Yeah. That's a big question. So some (laughs) behind the scenes that I'd like to. (sighs) Do you want me to give you some examples of other people's? Sure. Okay. So. Uh, somebody said, Karen Okonkwo of Tonal said, um, that, like the behind the scenes of Oprah, just in general. Okay. Um, what did my friend Jessica say? Oh my goodness. Hers was so good, and now I can't remember what it was. Somebody else, um, Matt said behind the scenes of like an executive, like a CEO. Mm-hmm. Some of my personal ones, um, uh, and some I'm speaking to somebody in this industry, actually. It's like the behind the scenes of recycling um and yeah. and a few other things like that hmm oh jessica said the behind the scenes i think she said of like a um funeral home director oh gosh yeah that can be <laughs> which i cannot wait yeah. to do that <laughs> Yeah, my wife's grandpa was a funeral director. So really? Lots of interesting stories. Oh, yeah. man. <laughs> um, uh, I don't know. I'm not, I don't feel like I have original answers. I mean, like, behind the scenes of things that matter. Like, I've always... I don't know, behind the scenes of, like, the day in the life of a teacher or something like that. Like, uh-huh. you know, those important parts of, of the community that you don't really hear that much. Right. Like, I feel like I also should know more about sort of behind the scenes of how the city operates or the county operates. Right. That's where things really matter. And I'm still thinking, like, I wish I had better answers for what you can do to, to reduce your impact or, or steer us in the right direction for, for climate change and climate impacts. And a, a lot of it is just pay more attention to what your local community is doing and start, spread you know, spread the expectation that your local leaders are going to act on the quality information that that they are provided by state agencies by universities because mm-hmm. um, you know if we don't start at the grassroots expecting that it's silly to assume that we're going to get a top-down version of it right which we do need you know we need yeah. top-down from our federal institutions and our our leading state institutions to say hey we've got this information it's clear you know a couple for three four decades of, of rehashing climate change and this sort of process is enough like we are we are damn confident in what we are facing yeah and we're just stalling because of these barriers that that have been put up in very intentionally right <laughs> you know yes yeah. so yeah it's always hard to know exactly what to do and and what what can you do and like living in Washington it doesn't feel like like voting or living in Seattle it doesn't feel like I can vote for any difference than what we really have like we're we're set pretty well as far as our 
options uh, options here and, yeah. and having leaders that, that make pretty sensible decisions but I don't know yeah <laughs> so local government functions yeah just be involved that's a big a big downside of of my career as well I'm just sort of thinking one last thing like we travel especially at the postdoctoral stage sort of from one to two year positions you're sort of um not able to root into a place very well mm-hmm. um, and that really impacts it reduces your impact in that community and that's one of the things I've been craving it's like I just want to be somewhere and know that I can stay there and really get into it right um, so that's like what I'm I guess the next big thing in life that I really want to do not to like be boring and sound old or whatever but like I've been <laughs> moving around so much the last six or seven years I just am tired of not not really knowing a place mm-hmm. Peter Neff uh, vote for Peter Neff yeah no don't vote for me <laughs> there's a reason I study ice and I don't deal with people I don't know you're too logical why, why <laughs> yeah. put a logical person into office that's crazy <laughs> I do really like working and talking with people so that's part of also like I get stuck in the lab so much or I'm going to Antarctica for three and a half months and it's like like I, you know your, what what you do is just not seen at that point. Right. So I've yeah. Twitter has become an interesting tool for me to feel more connected and feel like my work is is uh, doing something. Awesome. That's in the in between stage of being an idea, being a publication, or whatever other result we end up with, but pretty much publications. That's super cool. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being on. I really appreciate it. Um, you are at. Peter underscore Neff yeah. on Twitter and then on Instagram. I'm not, not much not on, Instagram, on Instagram. That's okay. I'm a little bit embarrassed in my handle. It's, it's, it's uh, a great I, handle. I, I, see, I see Pete. I get a lot of harassment from friends and family about that. But, it's, um, it's a hysterical It's handle. mostly, it's a mix of, uh, of ice and dog pictures. It's great. But yeah, I use Twitter a lot and I, I enjoy the feedback and, and sharing things. And um, yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. This yeah, was really you. great. Thanks again for listening. I really appreciate it. I hope you found what Peter had to say interesting. I'll be sharing out some photos on my Instagram and Twitter from it. You can look it up if you're listening to this like later on. And obviously it's probably not at the top of my feed anymore. Just search hashtag BTS podcast and you should be able to find it. The work that Peter does is really incredible. And I'm so grateful he showed me around the laboratory at University of Washington Please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Share your ideas with me of what you want to hear on this podcast. Uh, Whatever. Just share it with friends. Just the support is super appreciated. It is a little bit of a vacuum when you're making a podcast and when you even have one out in the open. On the previous podcast that I used to produce, we could see that people were listening, but the feedback loop was like dead silent unless I knew you personally. So it's just really good to know that people are not only listening, but have some sort of feedback. And uh, if you're just listening to this to go to sleep, that's totally fine too. I'm flattered you think my voice is so nice. That's uh, a huge compliment. But if you're not sleeping through this, please do subscribe, rate, and review. Share it with people. Let them know that you like it. It would be greatly appreciated.